This is C-SPAN's Afterwards podcast. This week, Wall Street Journal columnist Jason Riley discusses his book, The Black Boom. He argues that the policies during the Trump administration improved the economic lives of black people. So the book is not um, uh, uh, a defense of, of, of all of Donald Trump's policies. It is not a defense of his character, his personality, his Twitter feed. It's a defense of free market economic principles. He's interviewed by Trump administration former acting chair of the Council of Economic Advisors, Thomas Philipson. This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com slash podcast. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. Welcome, everyone. Today we have uh, Jason Riley as a guest who's written a phenomenal new book on uh, the progress of uh, African Americans during the Trump administration. Uh, welcome, Jason. Thank you for having me. Jason, you have a, a kind of an unusual perspective many times. So I'm wondering if you can sort of give the, give the viewers here sort of a feel for what in your past brought you to be a cons- one of the well-known conservative commentators, Wall Street Journal, sort of what your influencers were getting there? Well, I, I joined uh, the, the college newspaper uh, back in the early 1990s uh, when I was in school, and that's sort of uh, where I got the political, the political bug. I, I, I discovered um, uh, writers, uh, thinkers, intellectuals like Thomas Sowell and, and Shelby Steele and Glenn Lowry, and they had a huge impact on my uh, on my intellectual uh, development and on my thinking about race in particular, as well as economics and politics and, and some other issues. So um, so that's where I got my start. I I interned at USA Today during college, um, and then uh, about six months after graduation, I joined the Wall Street Journal, and and I've been writing for that newspaper ever since. So, Jason, I think uh, many viewers and readers of the Wall Street Journal were kind of impressed with the journal editorial page separating the issues of some people talking about Trump's personality from the issues of of, uh, Trump policies. Can you kind of give us a little bit, before we get into the substance of the book, can you kind of give us a little bit of insight behind the scenes, sort of uh, how that emerged? Well, I, I think what you saw there on the, from the editorial page editors were journalists who were um, doing their job. Uh, th- their job was to cover this president uh, the way they had covered previous presidents uh, in terms of um, uh, his analyzing his policies, uh, what, he, what he set out to do, whether he accomplished it, and, and what kind of impact it, it, it had. And, and the, the journal did do plenty of, of criticizing 
of uh, President Trump's character and Twitter feed and 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 all the rest. Um, uh, but they did not let that get in the way of carrying out their journalistic duties. And I think that's where a lot of other uh, mainstream journalists uh, erred and went wrong. And I think subsequently have have lost the trust of a lot of their their viewers or readers or listeners or what have you. They decided that that Donald Trump should be covered differently, and and really not so much covered as resisted. Um, you know, th- th- this is uh, uh, and this was something new. You know, this Republican presidents are used to a left leaning uh, uh, Washington press corps. That that's nothing new, but um, that press corps went uh, much further with with Donald Trump, and I and I really think it was journalistic malpractice. Uh, the way they behaved in, 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 in thinking that, that their, uh, their job was to uh, uh, take down this, this president, not just merely cover him. Yeah, I think that's important because the book, and I will, we'll get to the substance of, of the book uh, very briefly, but the book really, uh, the, the sort of main message of the book got buried in the mainstream media, obviously, because people didn't want to talk about you know, positive policy successes. But my, but my, my view of, I don't know if you from the journalistic side have a different view, but my view of, of the president, why they, obviously they were upset at his personality. Uh, that's one issue, but I also think, I don't know if you agree that by going on Twitter and communicating directly with voters on Twitter, he basically broke up the monopoly of the press in communicating with voters. So if you're a Republican uh, president in the past, whether it's Nixon, Reagan, or Bush, you basically have to go through the press to communicate with voters. But he bypassed the press with Twitter, which I thought was very useful. Do you think that kind of the monopoly breakup of communication with voters was one, and then an additional reason, I should say, why they were so hostile? Um, perhaps. Perhaps. And it was unprecedented, his use of social media. And I think you'll see presidents going forward uh, do this. But with Trump, it was especially important. As you said, a a lot of uh, Democratic presidents can usually depend on on the press to tell the the good news coming out of their administration. Uh, Republican presidents, not so much. And with Donald Trump, uh, almost never. They were extremely reluctant to, um, uh, to, to, to cover uh, his political victories, his political wins, or, or paint anything he was doing in a, in a positive light. And, and again, I think this was a, an, an ideolo- ideologically motivated uh, press corps that was committed to um, presenting President Trump as a bigot, as a racist, as someone whose uh, policies would harm uh, the prospects of, of, of low-income minority groups in this country. And as I write in the book, uh, when it turned out that his policies were not doing that, um, the press simply refused to tell that story. Uh, they played it down or they ignored it entirely. And, and that's one of the reasons I wanted to write this book. It's a very um, underreported story that I'm telling here. What was going on in terms of uh, the, the economic gains of disadvantaged groups in this country? It was quite remarkable. And uh, the, the point is not, I mean, the the, the, the The objective here is not to score partisan points. It is to tell a story about what types of policies produce the types of outcomes we'd all like to see. Uh, uh, Less unemployment, less poverty, more economic growth, less income inequality. That's what we were seeing 
under Donald Trump. I think it had a lot to do with the policies he put in place. And it's a story, again, that the press, by and large, refused to tell because they were so opposed uh, to this president and, and, and did not want to present anything he did in a positive light. Yes. Uh, so let's me get, get to the substance of the book. You already alluded sort of to the main punchlines of it. I think, you know, I was... Uh, the team in the White House was very isolated. We, we didn't see the lack of discussion of these results because we essentially produced a lot of them throughout the, the administration's term. In particular, if the viewers are interested, there's something called the, the uh, annual report of the Council of Economic Advisors, the, the economic report of the president, that outlines a lot of the facts that uh, Riley that uh, Jason is basically discussing, which he basically gets to in a much clearer way, I think, than we did sometimes. But it has some of the underlying facts if people are interested. So let me go to the book. It's a fair summary of your book, essentially, that the progress of African Americans during the period 17 to 19 before Corona hit was mainly due to the economic policies in place, not to immigration policies and not to the state policies, so the federal economic policies in, enacted, as opposed to immigration policy and minimum wage policy, which you spent a couple of chapters discussing. Is that a correct interpretation of the main message? Uh, I, I think so, yes. Uh, I, I'm arguing that, that the Trump administration policies prior to COVID produced economic growth. Um, and that economic growth is something that uh, low-income minority groups are able to take advantage of. I mean, the book is titled Black Boom, but it's really a working-class boom that I'm describing. It just so happens that blacks and, to some extent, Hispanics are overrepresented among the working class. But what we saw uh, uh, in that period, uh, the first three years of the Trump presidency, uh, prior to the pandemic, what we saw was economic growth that redounded mainly to the benefit of the working class in this country, the less educated, the less experienced, people that had often been left on the sidelines during previous economic booms. And, 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 and so that's what I'm getting at here. And, and, and my argument, basically, is that economic growth does a better job of lifting those groups than does wealth redistribution policies, than does uh, racial preference policies and so forth, which is what we saw under President Trump's uh, predecessor, and now what we're seeing under the current administration, them pursuing those types of policies. Yeah, and if you look at the international experience, that's definitely been the case for, with uh, China and India. You know, uh, re capitalism is probably uh, by far the greatest force in the world invented to lift the poverty, uh, mm -hmm. to reduce poverty in, in the world, and economic growth uh, through either U.S. policy or economic growth in those countries was really what uh, uh, reduced poverty uh, in the world sense. So I, I wanted to get to you. you. You have an interesting discussion in the, in the book about, you know, uh, pre-civil rights and post-civil rights black progress. Can you kind of elaborate on that? Well, I, I wanted to include that history um, to show that um, what happened under Trump uh, is not unprecedented insofar as when the economy has been growing in this country, uh, that is when uh, blacks and other minorities have been able uh, to take advantage of that growth and move themselves forward um, and, 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 and prosper. And, and so if you look at um, 
the, the, the fastest period of growth for black Americans since slavery. Um, economists put it in the post-war period between then and the early 1970s. Uh, so you're talking about a, a time period in this country where there was still legal uh, discrimination. You're talking about Jim Crow. Uh, you're talking about a pre-civil rights period, by and large. You're talking about a period when, when blacks had virtually no uh, political clout in this country, let alone uh, you know a black president or black, uh, you know, black mayors of large cities and so forth, as you began to see in the 1980s and 90s. None of that was in place. And yet, this was a period when blacks... Uh, were, were increasing uh, their incomes, uh, were increasing their home ownership rates, were leaving poverty, were entering uh, middle-class professions and so forth at unprecedented rates. And it's because the economy was growing. Uh, the post-war period was a time of tremendous economic prosperity in this country. And the argument there is that that is primarily what uh, these groups need. And then they will be able to take advantage of it from there. And that is what they need much more so than uh, a woke president who is putting in place uh, uh, racial preferences or group preferences, um, uh, picking and choosing winners and looters, uh, so to speak, in terms of government policy, um, uh, more so than they need wealth redistribution programs, uh, which we've seen in the, in the post-civil uh, rights era, uh, starting with the Great Society programs and so forth. Uh, that has not done as good a job of lifting uh, low-income groups uh, as simple economic prosperity has done. And, and so what we need uh, are, are policies that produce uh, economic growth. And then these groups will be able to take advantage of that. And, and, and the Trump years prior to COVID were just another example of this. Uh, we'd seen it in the past before, and we saw it again uh, uh, during those first three years of Donald Trump. Yeah, I thought that was a very interesting comparison. I think that doesn't get discussed a lot. Uh, so I thought it was very useful in relation to, to the Trump years. Can you also talk about the book gets into this, which I also thought was very interesting. It's the voting patterns of blacks and Hispanics, essentially, which is counteracting the mainstream media message. So even though you have a bombardment of negative uh, information about the president from the mainstream media, and the quieting or, or you know, non-reporting of any positive pol policy developments, you see a shift in votes towards the presidents by minorities. Can you talk a little bit about that part of the book? Well, sh sure. I, I mean, when, when Trump was first elected in, in 2016, um, he did not do uh, particularly well among um, blacks in particular uh, and Hispanics. Um, I mean, he did worse than... Um, even traditional Republican uh, candidates, presidential candidates have done. And, you know, I, I think, well, well, in terms of recent Republican presidential candidates prior to Trump, you had uh, Mitt Romney and John McCain, both of whom had to run against Obama. So I think we can we can cut them some slack there for how they did among black voters. But if you go to the pre-Obama era, uh, Trump underperformed uh, traditional Republican presidents going back to, uh, you know, uh, Gerald Ford in the 1970s. Um, so he started from a lower point than most in 2016. But what we did see in 2020 was an uptick in both black and Hispanic support. And I think that has a lot to do with um, how those groups fared economically during the Trump years prior to COVID. We saw record low unemployment rates for blacks and Hispanics. We saw record low poverty rates for blacks and Hispanics. And more importantly, we saw a uh, black wages rising at a faster rate than white wages 
during this period, during that three-year stretch prior to COVID. I mean, you also have to remember how bad Blacks had it economically for uh, the majority of Obama's presidency. You know, Black unemployment did not fall below double digits until the seventh year of the Obama presidency. I mean, that Blacks had it very bad economically uh, under President Obama. Um, they supported him overwhelmingly. He was well-liked among Blacks, personality-wise, and among whites, and still is. He still polls very well in terms of popularity. But his economic policies, his stewardship of the economy, uh, uh, did not go over well uh, uh, with Blacks or whites. And, and, and so uh, I think Blacks remember how bad things were. And under Trump, when they saw their fatter paychecks, when they saw how plentiful the job market was, um, I think they, they, they gave Trump credit for that. And that's part of the reason um, I believe he did better in 2020. He was focused on reopening the economy quickly after COVID hit. And of course, a lot of these workers I'm talking about are service sector workers. They couldn't work from home during the lockdowns. Um, uh, and, and, and they wanted to get back to work. And, and Trump was in favor of reopening the economy. And I think that that redounded to his benefit when it came to, to 2020. And that's why, although he lost the election, he, he did much better among both blacks uh, and Hispanics, particularly among the men in both of those groups. Shipping can make or break a sale. So optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch the season premiere of Grey's Anatomy tonight at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Yeah, I've written on the past also on sort of the total damage of COVID. You have to count both the disease itself, obviously, mortality, morbidity, but also the cost of preventing future disease, meaning uh, foregone economic activity. And if you look at the data, uh, uh, during 2020, the ma- vast majority of the total harm of COVID was cost of prevention, about 80% in the middle of the year, roughly, and 20% uh, traditionally measured of how we value life in, uh, in government accounting was due to the disease itself in terms of mortality. So Trump actually shows up, if you look internationally, U.S. shows up as much better than Europe, even though many people in the press held up Europe as role models of how to fight the disease. But in terms of total damage, the U.S. actually had a lot lower total damage because we had lower cost of prevention by opening up the economy much quicker uh, than the Europeans. So I definitely agree with you there. Coming back to Obama's um, policies, that kind of led into Trump. So I'm going to talk about how do we get to Trump and then what he did and then sort of the future. Uh, talk about the sort of slow recovery that you talk about in the book, because t- traditionally economists have kind of found that 
When you have a steep recession, you have enormous growth afterwards. It's sort of like a pendulum. If you swing it one yes. way, it's going to go even further or, or, or quicker to the other side. So talk a little bit about that and what you thought brought about the slow recovery. Well, you're right. Um, people uh, say, well, Obama inherited a recession from George W. Bush, which, of course, is true. It was a horrible recession. It was very deep. But as you pointed out, historically, the deeper the recession, the more robust the recovery. And yet under Obama, we had the slowest economic recovery in the post-war period. Um, uh, and, 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 and that is the economy that Trump inherited. I mean, there, there are people out there who want to say, oh, to the extent that we did have good economic uh, uh, growth under, under Trump, he simply uh, inherited this from, from his predecessor. And it really, no matter who had succeeded Obama, things would have turned out the way they did those first three years under Trump. And that's a, that's a revisionist history, uh, I, I would argue. Uh, you know, in 2015, the economy, which is the second to last year of the Obama presidency, uh, the economy grew at 3.1%. Uh, the next year, the last year of the Obama presidency, 2016, it grew at 1.6%, about half as uh, the growth was about half as much. And, and, and so that is the economy that Donald Trump inherited. That is an economy uh, that was slowing down, dramatically slowing down to the point where you had leading economists like Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary under President Clinton, uh, saying there was a 60 percent chance that we were going into a recession. You had the Federal Reserve and the Congressional Budget Office saying, you know, we're already at full employment. Uh, unemployment can't go any lower. Growth can't be any stronger. Uh, uh, we're at the end of a business cycle. They were talking about a soft landing. Uh, that was the talk. That was the economy that Trump uh, inherited. And what happened? Uh, he blew away all those expectations. Unemployment did, in fact, go lower, dramatically lower uh, than, than, than the Congressional Budget Office and then the Federal Reserve had predicted. Growth was stronger than the Federal Reserve had predicted. Trump exceeded those expectations. And so this wasn't merely uh, a continuation of what was going on under Obama. This was an acceleration. I mean, one data point I point to is um, for the lowest earners uh, uh, the, uh, in, in the lowest income brackets, uh, under the first three years of the Trump presidency, uh, their incomes grew at double the rate than, the, than they did in the second term of Obama. So this wasn't just a continuation. This was an acceleration. And I think the, the people who are, who are making this, uh, 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 this continuation argument are making a sort of uh, heads-I-win-tails-you-lose type of argument. In other words, if things had gone sideways those first three years under Trump, I doubt they would have blamed President Obama for that. Uh, but because they went well, they want to give Obama credit. Uh, and I don't think they can have it both ways. Yeah, I agree. I mean, in fact, there's a body in, in the uh, legislature called, like you referred to, the Congressional Budget Office. And for our viewers, the Congressional Budget Office is charged with looking at the economic outlook under current law, where the key term is under current law, meaning Obama policies. So they did that in 2016. And that was their prediction of what a continuation of Obama policies look like. They're legally charged 
with forecasting that under current law, which was Obama policies. And then people turn around, I think, I agree with you, they turn around after the fact that says, no, that's not what we meant by a continuation of Obama policies, even though we have a legal uh, sort of mandate to provide that prediction. Here's what we really meant, and it would have been what Trump uh, accomplished. So I think I couldn't agree more that that's kind of a uh, uh, schizophrenia. Now, the Trump, the, uh, the president tweeted that they were con men, and, and I think <laughs> that's a strong term, but it kind of signifies what's going on. They're pretending to be someone they're not uh, by having one set of uh, uh, definitions of Obama continuation in 16 and another in, in, in 19. Yeah. Now, yeah. Wh- what, do you, what do you think cost, the, getting more into the sort of slow recovery, what is your take on the exact policies which you think yeah. Obama instituted that was contributing to that slow recovery? Well, again, these are policies that I think harmed growth. So, for example, uh, there was a tremendous expansion of the welfare state. It, you know, he, he used the recession as an excuse to extend unemployment benefits, to extend uh, food stamp programs and so forth. Um, a lot of this discouraged people from returning to the labor force. Um, And without workers, you're a less productive uh, country, which is one of the problems I have with uh, uh, the the, uh, Biden's Build build Back Better um, uh, proposals, is that they are going to disincentivize people uh, uh, to work, to return to the workforce, Uh, expanding the welfare state. Um, you know, expanding government relief programs well into the middle class, not just to help the poor, but to help people with six-figure incomes. This is, uh, I think, harmful to economic growth. And this is what we saw under under Obama, an expansion of, of the welfare state, an expansion of government programs. And, and I think that that disincentivized uh, work. We also saw uh, taxes uh, under Obama. And and uh, and regulation after regulation after regulation, uh, I think that harmed business growth, that harmed hiring, and and so a lot of what um, uh, happened under Trump is is a reversal of those policies: less regulation, and tax cuts, particularly corporate tax cuts, which gave businesses an incentive uh, to bring money back from overseas and invest it here, and and they did that, and 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 they hired. And, and we saw the growth that, that, uh, that occurred uh, due to that. Uh, we saw the unemployment go down. We saw the poverty rate go down. And we saw incomes rise. And, and, and so the, it, to, 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 it, the problem under Obama were policies that harmed uh, the expansion of the economy, kept the economy from expanding at a faster rate. And that's why we saw such slow growth for so long. I think he was really holding the economy back and Trump sort of uh, unleashed its animal spirits, and, and we saw the result. Yeah, you touch a little bit about corporate taxes and also investment, which presumably drives demand for labor and is good for workers, even though the press treats it as a sort of zero-sum game. But can you talk a little bit about that kind of debate? Because it was kind of interesting how many Obama economists flipped during Trump in, in favoring uh, corporate tax cuts. Well, I mean, I, I think honest economists know corporations largely are going to pass on these costs to workers. Um, it, it's going to be passed on in, in, in terms of uh, their pay, uh, what workers receive in pay or what they receive in benefits. But these are passed on. And so to the, to the extent that you are raising taxes on corporations, um, you're harming workers. You're harming, you're harming workers. And, and, this whole, and, and it doesn't spread evenly across all sectors of the economy. It's particularly true in the manufacturing sector. 
And uh, and again, Trump proved proved that we could still get something out of the American manufacturing sector that uh, that a lot of people have given up on uh, and said there's no more growth coming there. All those jobs aren't coming back. I don't think they are all coming back. We're not going to have the manufacturing sector that we had in the in the in the 50s and 60s and 70s. But um, there's still something there, and I think those tax cuts. Uh, those corporate tax cuts in particular uh, showed showed that there's still something there. But he also cut individual taxes as well. Let people keep more of their money uh, and spend it how they want. And and again, this 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 is not um, um, rocket science here. You know, when Kennedy cut taxes in the '60s, this happened. When Reagan cut them in in the in the '80s, this happened. When Bush cut them in the 2000s, it happened. And when Donald Trump cut them. It happened. So, uh, again, this is not something unique to to uh, Trump, uh, the Trump administration. He's simply doing things here or did things here that um, that uh, have produced similar results when other presidents have done them. Yeah. And I also think even if not everything goes to the workers, which there's a lot of evidence that a lot goes to the workers, uh, you know, half of America uh, are shareholders, they're owners of these companies. And their pensions are presumably benefiting. That's something we stress quite a bit on how much people's pensions were increasing uh, during the Trump administration. And these are workers throughout the economy. Might not be the poorest of the workers, but they're certainly workers uh, in the economy. There was also a big debate. I wanted to sort of hear your take on this, on the buybacks that occurred with these tax cuts. Can you talk a little bit about that? I don't I don't. I don't think I get into that uh, in the book, um, uh, the, the, the buyback debate. So, no, I, 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 I don't get into that, no. Okay. Well, I think, I think also that was misguided a little bit because if you have a buyback, that's just better reallocation of capital. You take it from not investing in the company and you pay it out to shareholders and those shareholders can invest it somewhere else as opposed to less uh, productive ways for the company to invest it. So if you have buybacks, that doesn't mean that necessarily that it doesn't go into investment. It just goes to a different investment from that particular company. So I thought that debate was kind of misguided as well. Now, there was a lot of, so coming in now, we we basically talked about the Obama years. Coming in now to the election, uh, past the election, Trump won before he is inaugurated. There was a lot of naysayers who were talking about that we're now going into a dramatic recession because of Trump. You talk a little bit about that in the book. Yes, I, as I mentioned, Larry Summers, but he was not the, the only one. Um, uh, th- that was the conventional wisdom, that we were at the end of a business cycle um, uh, and, and that we just couldn't squeeze anything more out of, out of this current cycle. I mean, I think the... Um, the Federal Reserve said that growth wouldn't be much above 2%, maybe 2.1%. They were predicting for 2017, 2018, 2019. Trump exceeded that. The Trump economy exceeded that. Uh, I think they said unemployment wouldn't fall below around 4, 4.1%. Again, it did. It fell well below that, a full percentage point below that, in fact. And so um, that that's – and I think it's important – to point that out, because, again, there is this argument that this was all going to happen anyway. And, and, and in fact, um, well into 2018, you still had President Obama out there taking credit for the Trump economy. Uh, you, you had uh, Joe Biden uh, taking credit again uh, for the Trump economy. And, 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 and saying, you know, we started this, the, 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 the Obama administration started this. all of this that you're saying today. Don't forget who started it. 
Uh, and, and again, I, that's why I wanted to point out what those expectations were when, um, when, when Trump took office, a, a slowing economy and, and, and predictions that we might be headed into another recession. And that's important. It's also important to note that um, the job growth um, that we saw under Trump uh, occurred when we were near full employment. And you know, as an economist, to get that kind of job growth when there are still so few people looking for work at the time is pretty remarkable. I mean, when, when, when you have a lot of people out of work, a high unemployment rate, uh, and, then you get, and then you get tremendous amounts of job growth, that's, that's one thing. But to do so uh, at, 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 the, at the time in the business cycle that Trump did it is remarkable in and of itself. And I don't think he received a lot of credit for that. Yeah, I agree. And also there were more dramatic, you know, discussions, as you probably are aware. You know, Paul Krugman thought we're going to have an immediate crash when Trump came into office, essentially, yeah. at the same time as we saw a complete spike in uh, business optimism when Trump got elected. So that's, you know, tells you a little bit yes. about uh, on the, the pulse he has on the economy. I think that was kind of dramatic. Go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, no, no, no. You're, you're, you're absolutely right. Krugman was, was, was among them. It was the, the conventional wisdom that, that the Trump policies and also that these policies, that tax cuts were just going to be for the wealthy. Tax cuts were going to be for the wealthy. Um, and, and, and in fact, what we saw, again, is, is, is those corporate tax cuts redounding to the benefit of workers, which is what the economic literature says. Kevin Hassett has done, who was part of the uh, uh, Council of, of Economic Advisors, uh, has done research on this. And um, uh, corporate tax cuts do tend to redound to the benefit of workers, ultimately. And, 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 and that's, that's what we saw. And, and uh, again, we saw, uh, and, and this is what I, I, I try and stress in the book, is that um, because this was a working class boom and because blacks are, are overrepresented among the working class, uh, economic uh, growth meant less income inequality. The left obsesses over income inequality. And we saw less income inequality. We saw it shrinking under Donald Trump during the first three years of his administration prior to COVID. Black wages rising at a faster rate than white wages. And this, again, is something that the naysayers, when Trump was elected, and, and, and said if, if he is elected and if he does put through these tax cuts, it's going gonna, it's gonna to harm minorities in this country. The exact opposite happened. And, and I think uh, that is a story that needs to be told. If you care about economic inequality, these are the types of policies that can shrink it. And, 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 and that's why this story needs to be told. Yeah, I agree. So uh, we at the Council of Economic Advisors actually came out. It was driven by Kevin's research on using the literature to look at what the effect of the tax reform would be. And we were ridiculed at the time as being dishonest, etc. And then obviously what happened was exactly what we said would, ha uh, would happen. Uh, uh, but I, it kind of shows you the how political economists have gotten. They didn't used to be. They used to be more neutral. And the, and the Krugman example, I think, is sort of a, a good one, where Krugman is probably the economist who economists turned into political pundit who sort of damaged the profession the most, I think, by having such biased views on everything being a, against Republican on every particular topic that, yeah. he, that, that he can't really see straight. But even Larry Summers and people argued against the tax cuts, even though they argued for them under Obama. Right, so right, it's, right. It's, it's kind of a, it's kind of a strange 
it's like the rest of society gets divided among economists on political grounds, and that gets away, gets in the way from doing the science, which CA or Council of Economic Devices, we, where I was at, we put out that report led by a large part by some of Kevin's research, and we basically just used the literatures to say, here's what the literature says will happen. It wasn't necessarily what we thought would happen. Here's what the scientific literature says. And it was just completely dismissed. So can you talk mm -hmm. a little bit about how you see that from a journalistic point of view? Because it's been a big change with Trump that that occurred. Well, uh, again, it's part of what I was getting at earlier when I said that journalists sort of put aside their, their, their traditional standards when it comes to covering an, an administration and went into this full resistance mode and thought that their job was to, you know, stand up at, at, at press briefings every day and berate uh, the president or, or, or berate the press secretary, uh, not simply cover the administration, but to resist it. And, and, and you, you, you saw this in, 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 in people like Krugman and, 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 his, and his newspaper, the New York Times, but also in the Washington Post. You saw it at, at, at major news networks. They decided they, they were going to cover this president differently. And they did. Uh, and, and as a result, um, uh, stories like the ones I'm trying to tell in this book didn't get told um, because it ran counter to the narrative that they were pushing. And they didn't really care if the facts um, did not support that narrative. They were going to run with that narrative anyways. And, and so that's that's the result. And it results in a, ultimately a, a misinformed or uninformed public. Uh, and, the, and the public deserves a press that is going to be somewhat objective in their news coverage of an administration. That's not what, what we got under, under Donald Trump. So I, I, you know, I blame my own profession, and, and I don't know uh, when or if um, uh, journalism will, will, will be able to win back uh, the trust of, of the public, given its, its, its behavior under, under the Trump administration. And, and um, I, I think you're, you're, you're seeing the fallout from that now, um, this, 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 uh, this trust of, of, of what people read. I think you, you saw it in, in, in COVID, um, uh, the, the coverage, uh, you know, should we trust what's coming out of the White House? Should we trust what the press is telling us? Um, I, I really think that the journalism brought this on itself. Uh, I mean, we, we didn't have the highest approval rating to begin with uh, prior to Trump, but we certainly didn't do, do ourselves any, 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 any favors uh, by the way uh, we covered this administration. And, and there were some exceptions, like I believe the Wall Street Journal and the editorial page in particular, who, who sort of kept their wits about them. Um, they didn't behave as though the president was above criticism, but they wanted to give him credit where they thought it was due. And, uh, but they were the exception, not the rule, unfortunately. Yeah, I thought I, we saw that from inside the White House, too. I thought it was very much more neutral coverage by the Wall Street Journal than uh, obviously other uh, in especially the editorial page. You were very critical of some aspects of uh, the economic policy, such as tariff policy, et cetera. But yeah. then you lay then you laid out, uh, you know, the positive aspects of in particular the impact on poorer parts of the population, what we used to call sure. in the White House the blue collar boom. Yeah. And, and, and I thought that was very refreshing in terms of having a more neutral criticizing where, where you thought it was due, even though we, I, I potentially disagree with that criticism. But uh, I thought it was a very, you guys were kind of alone in that space of trying to get your, keep your head cool in, in the mix well, of this. Yeah, I mean, we had, uh, the journal had issues uh, with some of Trump's economic policies, and particularly his trade policies, but also his immigration uh, policies um, to the extent that he wanted to reduce 
uh, legal immigration in this country. Uh, the, the Wall Street Journal editorial pages long supported uh, legal immigration and argued that uh, they benefit the country economically uh, by and large. There's certainly trade-offs, particularly with uh, poor immigrants, uh, less, uh, less educated immigrants and so forth. But on balance, we've argued that, um, uh, that immigration is a, is, a net, is a net benefit for the country. So we really did frown on, uh, on Trump's efforts to reduce um, uh, legal immigration in particular. And uh, also on, on, on his sort of uh, enforcement-only policy when it came to illegal uh, immigration, uh, that uh, we've long argued that uh, the, the most effective immigration policy would be to balance uh, more border enforcement with giving people more legal ways to come, and that that would be the right combination to reduce pressure on the border. So we did take issue. And in the book, um, I do get in, as you mentioned earlier, uh, I do get into some of the immigration debates. And the argument that I take on in the book is one made by a lot of Trump supporters, which is that his crackdowns on illegal immigration, they argue, mm. redounded to the benefits of blacks. And I argue that um, blacks historically have not needed um, uh, uh, less competition from immigrants in order to prosper mm. in this country. And that to the extent that they did prosper for the first three years under Donald Trump, uh, I did not uh, see the argument, see the see the evidence uh, uh, in the data that it was due to a crackdown on illegal immigration. Um, and, and that argument, that is an argument I take on uh, in the book. Um, so the book is not um, uh, uh, a defense of, of, of all of Donald Trump's policies. It is not a defense of his character, his personality this Twitter feed. It's a defense of free market economic principles, which, again, I think uh, are a better way of advancing uh, uh, upward mobility uh, than, than, than wealth redistribution and, and racial preference policies. And that's the argument I lay out in the book. Yeah. And no, I think in defense of the president, I don't think he's so against legal immigration. I think what he was mostly against is that it's not merit-based. It's based on families' uh, genetic makeup, essentially, whether you're allowed into the country or not. And I think uh, there was a big push in the White House, uh, led by Jared Kushner, but also with, obviously, Stephen Miller, but also Council of Economic Advisors, uh, that try to push a package uh, with merit-based uh, immigration. That got completely squashed because of COVID coming in and everything else was put to the side. But I think the, the, main, the main issue with legal immigration, I thought, uh, was that it wasn't merit-based and that we needed to change it. U U.S. is kind of unique in that way. I mean, if you just look at our northern neighbor, Canada, it's very merit-based in terms of immigration policy. Uh, uh, but U.S. is kind of unique in having such a high... Uh, uh, priority put on family members coming in as opposed to uh, how much you will produce or produ or basically uh, contribute it to the economy. This comes back to Milton Friedman, essentially, so who, who famously argued that, you know, we couldn't have the open border policy we had in, in 1910, let's say, when a lot of immigrants came in because of a welfare state. Once you have a welfare state, the immigration policy is completely different because now people can come in just for the government uh, transfers as opposed to before a welfare state when people immigrate it's a mutual benefit both the worker coming in and the company hiring them uh, benefit there's no 
uh, there's only a mutual gain before the uh, be, be, of the person coming and also the uh, people hiring him. That's not necessarily the case in the welfare state, which is obviously the pressure that a lot of people are concerned with free health care, etc., that people come in and then they don't uh, contribute and draw on taxes. I think that that is the real crux of, uh, of the issue. And, and I, I think the merit-based part of the immigration package, was, it was too bad it wasn't, that it couldn't be pushed further because I think it's an important component in how the president saw uh, immigration policy overall. Well, uh, I, I don't, I don't, um, I don't think there's any doubt that uh, that the that the system as it as it currently exists is broken and badly broken. It, it, it was built for a, a different uh, society, a different economy, and a different century, and 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 uh, it clearly needs uh, updating. And and I think there's a a debate to be had over whether we should move away from family-based immigration and toward. Uh, more merit or skills-based immigration, as you described, places like Canada have. Uh, I, I think that 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 debate that debate is, is is fine, and I and I would welcome welcome that debate. Uh, the argument I make in the book, however, is whether um, uh, immigrants uh, harm job prospects of Americans, and particularly Black Americans. And there again, um, uh, I, I do not read the literature uh, in a way that says that that is the case. Uh, there is some evidence that uh, immigrants, low-skill immigrants in particular, can put downward pressure on 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 uh, Americans without a high school degree. Um, a very small, which is a very small percentage of Americans, and a rapidly shrinking percentage of Americans. But there is some evidence uh, presented, particularly by uh, researchers like George Borjas of Harvard, that have shown four or five percent downward pressure on the wages of the lowest skilled Americans. Um, uh, uh, there is no evidence, not even from Borjas, that uh, these immigrants are displacing workers in the U.S., displacing na uh, 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 natives or pushing them out of jobs. Um, but again, my focus in the book is on uh, uh, the impact on black workers in particular. And uh, no matter how many millions uh, of illegal immigrants you think are in this country, I think the official number is around 11 or 12 million, but some people say it's 20 million or higher. Uh, pick your number. The point is the economic gains that I described among blacks during the first three years of the Trump administration occurred with those people in this country. Um, so however many million illegal immigrants you think are in this country, it did not stop unemployment from falling to record lows under Donald Trump for black Americans or poverty rates falling to record lows uh, among blacks under Donald Trump's first three years as president. These, again, blacks and other low-skill workers are supposed to be the workers that are harmed the most by immigrants, and illegal immigrants in particular. Yet the wages of the lowest-skilled uh, workers in the U.S. were rising at a faster rate than their bosses, even with all of these illegal immigrants in the country. Now, this is not an argument for illegal immigration, what I'm saying is that people who point to immigrants or illegal immigrants in particular as, as unique, uniquely harmful to the job prospects uh, of, of blacks or the wages of blacks, um, uh, I, I, I think they're off base based on my reading of the literature, but also based on the experience of, of, uh, of, of, of black economic growth under Donald Trump prior to COVID. 
Yeah, I agree. And there were many other reasons, obviously. You made it very clear in the book that you're not uh, for illegal immigration. And the main reason, the main rationale, I think, was that, you know, the drug trade comes through the the southern border. That was part of it. Ninety percent of heroin comes through the southern border into the U.S. We have a huge uh, fentanyl crisis where China goes through the southern border into the U.S. There's a lot of other reasons. The labor markets put it that way. Uh, to care about it. Well, we're, 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 yeah. we're a sovereign country. We should decide who comes into uh, America, not the people who want to come. And I think that Americans are rightly outraged at what is going on, the chaos we see on the border. Uh, they want the border uh, fixed. They don't want it yeah. erased. And you have a, a party out there that is pretending as if there shouldn't be a border at all, that people should, should anyone should just be able to walk into uh, the sovereign nation, uh, no questions asked. And I don't think that that's what the American people want. Uh, so we do need border security. We do need to protect the border. Uh, terrorists are out there. They could exploit that. Uh, drug traffickers are out there. They could exploit that. Uh, human smugglers are out there. They could exploit. There are all kinds of reasons to uh, protect the border. This is not an argument for illegal immigration. The question is, what impact do immigrants have on the job prospects and the economic prosperity of, of Black Americans, and 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 my uh, and, and, and as I read the literature, um, uh, they're they're not having a huge impact on on the economic prosperity of Black Americans. Yeah, and I think I think the book makes us very clear that that's the angle you're taking. I'm not saying you're taking any other angle. I'm just saying that the the, the push towards reducing illegal immigration should be separated from merit-based legal immigration, which I think the press obviously modeled uh, for self-serving purposes. Uh, when they covered immigration on the president. Let me go to the last chapter, which ki- kind of uh, discusses that many, some people argue that state policies of raising minimum wages was uh, contributed to this, but you negate that. Uh, can you talk a little bit yeah. about that? Sure. So after uh, I wanted to take on an argument uh, on immigration that, that some of Trump's supporters were putting forward uh, as a reason for the, for the uh, economic growth that we saw, uh, and, and then I wanted to take on an argument from the left, uh, put forward as a reason. They, and they often said that, well, uh, the wages of the lowest income workers were rising because uh, states uh, were raising their minimum wages. And, uh, and that explains uh, the economic gains we saw in the working class uh, under Trump. And of course, this all started under Obama because uh, that's when states sort of began raising their, um, states began raising their, their minimum wage. And um, uh, again, I, 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 uh, I, uh, I, I don't find uh, the literature supporting, supporting that claim. Uh, first, first, the minimum wage is a very uh, blunt instrument when it comes to addressing uh, poverty. I mean, uh, most people who make the minimum wage aren't poor. And most people who are poor already make more than the minimum wage. What, what, what poor families need are jobs. If you, uh, your, your typical family living in poverty has no workers. The problem is not that they have workers only making the minimum wage. They lack workers, period. And so to the extent that you are uh, uh, pricing people out of the labor force, you are not addressing poverty. But I do look exact. I, I look particularly at states that did raise their minimum wage. And, and raising the minimum wage involves trade-offs. If you make the minimum wage and it, it, it goes up by law, you will make more money, obviously. Um, if you keep your job. And if you keep working the same number of hours that you were working before the wage went up, 
But those are two big ifs. And the studies that have been put out there, uh, particularly in places like Seattle, which put in place a higher minimum wage in recent years, is that people, in fact, were given fewer hours to work uh, uh, or they weren't hired at all. And so when it came to incomes, uh, these studies show uh, that the, that these workers were ultimately worse off. They were more they, they were making less money because even though they were making more per hour, they were working fewer hours due to the minimum wage hikes. So again, these 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 are these are trade offs that that are involved here. And the left very mm-hmm. often does not want to talk about the downside of lifting the wage floor. Um, uh, but in fact, there is there is a quite significant. Uh, downside. And then we were mentioning the Congressional Budget Office uh, earlier. They also put out a study uh, on minimum wages and, and, and pointing this out, that, that um, uh, some people will get higher pay, other people will, will lose their jobs or have to work fewer hours because of, of the wages. But this is not a, uh, I argue, this is not a, um, uh, 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 th- this is not evidence or, or this is not the reason that we saw the economic gains that we saw uh, under Trump prior to COVID, this lifting of minimum wages at the state at the state level. Yeah, I, I, I tend to agree. Economists in general believe that if you impose price controls in a market, which is what a minimum wage is in a labor market, mm-hmm. you reduce quantity, that is to say number of workers, right? So you be, because you don't allow people to trade at lower prices than, and, than what's mandated by the floor, in this case, a minimum wage. So what was particularly troublesome, I think, with that explanation is that we saw huge growth in employment at the same time we saw wage increases. Right. So that, does, that yeah. doesn't lend itself very well to no. minimum wages, because no. if minimum wages, you will see wage increases potentially, but you will presumably also see drop in employment from it. And there's also a racial aspect uh, to these minimum wage hikes, because they tend to harm the job prospects of uh, the least skilled, least educated workers, a disproportionate number of whom are blacks and Hispanics in this country, and so to the extent that you are raising uh, the minimum wage, you're 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 disproportionately harming those groups, and it's hard to move up uh, the rungs on the ladder if you can't get to the first rung, if you can't get that entry level job. And what these jo- what these uh, wage hikes often do is price people uh, out of work, um, and 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 so that's that's also something I, I get into. Uh, in the in the book, um, and and people also don't know the history of of uh, a lot of people don't know the history of minimum wage laws in this country. Um, they they were uh, in in the first part of the uh, 20th century. Um, they were put in place in part to price blacks out of the labor market, particularly uh, southern workers and southern black workers moving north during the Great Migrations. Um, uh, the unions in the, in the north and, 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 and management in the, war, in, in the north did not want um, uh, the competition. Uh, for, for, they didn't want blacks filling these jobs. The politicians in the north didn't want blacks filling these jobs. And these uh, minimum wage laws were put in place in part to price blacks out of the labor force. I'm not arguing that that's why uh, people favor them today, but uh, my point is that they're having a similar effect, regardless of the attempt of the intent that they are disproportionately harmful to uh, to, to to blacks. And I and I bring that up because we we, we, we were recently having a debate about whether uh, the filibuster was was uh, a racist because uh, it was used to block civil rights legislation in the past. And I and I think if you're going to play that game, uh, you can talk about the origins of a lot of laws that are in place today, including uh, the minimum wage laws having uh, 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 this sort of tarnished uh, uh, history. 
Yeah, so uh, I think uh, we're coming up on the last few minutes here. I think, you know, first of all, congratulations on a, on a fantastic book. I also think it's a sign, which you talk about in the book, that this is an interesting book, even though these facts were out there, right? So how do you see this progressing in the future where we have the, you know, the media so divided and both sides are trying to potentially suppress uh, beneficial news to the other side and highlight, you know, harmful news uh, of yeah. the other side. How do you see that progressing in the future? Well, I, I think it could get worse before it gets better. Um, I think social media um, uh, uh, can, can, uh, is one reason why. It, it allows people to um, uh, only uh, watch or, or listen to or read uh, exactly what they want, something that's going to reinforce their own biases um, uh, and, 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 and so, uh, we end up talking past one another in our, in our national conversations to the extent that we have them. Um, and, and, and that's, that's, that's a problem. And, and I'm, and I'm not sure how that's going to play out, but I think it could get, it could get worse before, before it gets better. I mean, the nice thing about obviously the internet and social media is, is the access to information. Um, uh, but it also, the downside is that, um, if we're not sharing a source of information, uh, we could often just, just wind up talking right past one another. And, and that's what we see uh, a lot of today, un un unfortunately. Yeah. And that's a very uh, important message, I think, uh, to conclude with. Uh, thank you, Jason, for a really powerful book and taking the time today to talk to us. Thank you. I enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to this week's Afterwards podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, listen to C-SPAN's podcast about books. Learn about the latest nonfiction books and best-selling authors. In each episode, we report on bestsellers lists and book reviews from around the country. You'll also hear authors talking about their latest books and insider interviews with nonfiction book publishing industry experts. <laughs>